After Jericho and was passing through it, a man there named Zacchaeus, he was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was short in stature. So he ran ahead, climbed a sycamore tree to see him because he was going to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried down and was happy to welcome him. All who saw it began to grumble and said, he has gone to be the guest of one who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, look, half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as much. Then Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek out and to save the lost. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So this is one of those uh, Bible stories that church people grew up learning as children, right? And I guess because the smallness of Zacchaeus makes it relatable to the children. In fact, our kids today downstairs are learning this exact same story today. So you can compare notes with your children um, at the end of the the day. Uh, There's even the song that goes with it. I'm not going to sing the song, but do you know the song? Yeah, so you can sing that on your way home as well. Now, those of us of a certain age remember learning this story with the best of church technology at the time, which was the flannel board. Uh, So I have a Do you remember this? Yeah. So there you go. And I was thinking back, my wife and I were talking about this as I was looking over the text, and uh, the lessons that we were taught as kids about this particular story, um, you know, the, the popular ones were, of course, even if you're small, you can do big things for God, you know? Did you learn that one? I just found out, uh, like, four or five months ago that I'm 5'8". My license says 5'11". I know that's a lie. Um, I don't even know how it got on there. I wouldn't tell that lie. But I always walked around saying I was 5'10", and then my wife was like, you're not 5'10". And uh, there was some sort of medical report I was reading over, and it's like, Mickey, it says I'm 5'8". And she was like, yeah. So there you go. I didn't know. So if you're small, you can do big things for God. Um, The other one, and pastors like to use this one, of course, because... The, the story involves Zacchaeus giving a lot of money away. So uh, an encounter with Jesus always results in generosity. Like that's one of the uh, horrible lessons that we can learn <laughs> from this story. Or maybe you were taught that. Or one of the more popular ones was no matter what other people think about you, you're always loved by Jesus. Now that one is more in the orbit of the story, and we'll get to that uh, shortly. But what I want to do is... Uh, at the beginning here is say this, that this story is not really a kid's story. It's actually a very complicated, it's kind of an irritating story. And what I want to do is invite you to, in your mind's eye, to just enter the city of Jericho as Luke retells this story and to listen and to watch for what is actually going on. Now, some background Jesus is headed to Jerusalem, and it will be his last time. What is on the horizon for Jesus at this point in the story is his arrest, his trial, 
and then his death. That is on the way, and he's making his way to Jerusalem. Now, in Luke's gospel, he's been doing this since chapter 9. Scholars call this the travel narrative, which makes it sound like fun, like Jesus and the disciples and the VW van, Europe 72 and the tape deck heading to Jerusalem for the festival. But it's really not that fun. It's kind of an unfolding dirge. I mean, this is a very solemn piece of the gospel. And by this time in his life, Jesus is a well-known teacher, healer, miracle worker. I mean, there are plenty of stories of strangers coming up to him and asking him to say the magic words, to do the magic things, and to heal them or change their station in life. I mean, this is pretty common. So Jesus is known for these things at this point in his life. He's also known for his, and this is the word we would use today, his problematic associations and friendships with certain people. Back in chapter 7 of Luke's gospel, this is Jesus speaking, and he's quoting people about himself. Um, This is early Twitter, okay? Uh, But he's saying, he says in uh, chapter 7, For John the Baptist came eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he is a demon. And the Son of Man, referring to himself, has come eating and drinking, and you say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. I like that they have their own categories. So he's known for these things. Or as the one line from... um, the, the, the B-side track called A Christmas Song, Dave Matthews writes about Jesus. So the story goes, so I'm told the people he knew were less than golden-hearted. Gamblers and robbers, drinkers and dro- jokers, all soul-searchers like you and me. So even today, this is the opinion people have of Jesus. His associations are questionable. And so as he enters Jericho, he does so with a particular narrative about his life, a reputation. There are stories attached to the name of Jesus and the person of Jesus. And my guess is that Zacchaeus was aware of some of these, especially the ones about Jesus' patience with and even friendships with tax collectors like himself. So Jesus enters the streets with that reputation, that narrative about his life that people know. But then this other guy enters the streets, Zacchaeus, and he has a particular public narrative about his life, too. He's a man with his own preceding reputation. Everybody knows him. He's the local tax collector and apparently a promoted one. Luke says he was a chief tax collector. He qualifies that title by saying in the next line, he was rich, lest we miss that. He wasn't a bad tax collector. He was really, really good at it. So this is Zacchaeus. They know him for this. And he's in the 1%. He's an elite. And I suspect, like it is with us these days, that the people of Jericho carried around with them this kind of tabloid-like relationship with Zacchaeus, a kind of conflicted fascination with his life, the emotions of envy and hate in the minds of everyone who knew him. I like the New Yorker cartoon from this week. Uh, I have a picture of it here. I love what it says. I wish I had a salary that disgusted people. (laughs) You see? 
We tend to want what we don't have, and until we have it, we harbor this really strong dislike for the people who already have it. And so Zacchaeus certainly walked around with that kind of vibe in his life. Now, to be clear, Zacchaeus was certainly a part of an unjust system of tax collections within the Roman economy. There was a freedom for these tax collectors to jack up the prices and put the excess in their pockets, and that certainly happened. Otherwise, why would people hate them so much? But there was also, there was also this freedom within the system to not do it that way. There was also a freedom to do the job in a just way. Again, back at the beginning of Luke, in chapter 3, John the Baptist uh, is preaching. I say preaching. John the Baptist was more of a yeller. He's just yelling at people. He's just so angry. Um, And he's going off and on about, like, righteousness and get your life together. And I don't know if John expected this, but at the end of his sermon, there was a Q&A. And the people in the audience were like, great, what do we do with what you just said? And so he takes these questions and he answers them. And notice what it says in verses 12 and 13. Even the tax collectors came to be baptized and they asked him, teacher, what should we do? And he said to them, uh, I'm adding that. That's a... That's an implied part of the Greek, uh, because I don't know if John was expecting that question. But he tells them, collect no more than the amount prescribed to you. That's it. That's all he says. No instruction to uh, quit your job and to do something more righteous and to exercise uh, your holiness in a new way. He just says, oh, within the system, do it justly. Exercise your freedom to do right. So uh, theft was not a Roman mandate, but simply a temptation with, <clears throat> within the system. Whoa. But it was also meant, but it also meant that these people could do their jobs in a very just way. And perhaps Zacchaeus was like this, and no one seemed to notice. Maybe he knew of these words from John the Baptist, and he applied that to his life, and no one seemed to notice. So, two people with questionable reputations are about to meet. One of them, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, and the other man living in the very heart of those two categories. And when Jesus speaks to Zacchaeus and invites himself over to his home, I love that, the response of the crowd as you saw, as you heard, is noisy with judgment, not just of Zacchaeus, but of both Jesus and Zacchaeus. They say he, Jesus, has gone to be the guest in the home of a sinner. Frederick Buechner, the late Frederick Buechner, writes about this scene. Jesus opens his mouth to speak. All Jericho hugs itself in anticipation of hearing him, hearing him give the man holy hell. Woe unto you, repent, Wise up is the least of what they expect. What Jesus says is, come down on the double. I'm staying at your house. And the mob points out that the man Jesus is talking to is a public disaster. A public disaster. Well, it's election season, friends. 
Isn't it always election season? There's always a commercial. And I know some of you are like, is this the moment he tells us who he votes for? No, I've gone this long, 17 years almost. Uh, You're just going to have to maintain the mystery. But the campaign commercials are really interesting and funny, but they are truly opportunities to observe this human tendency towards othering and judgment. The formats of all the commercials, regardless of the party, they're all the same. Name the opponent, and once you name the opponent, the opponent shows up on the screen, usually in black and white. (laughs) Flickering like a film, red writing. Then list off all their wrongdoings and failures. Then flirt with rumor. And then make a case that you are the safer, more righteous option. Both parties, those are the commercials. And it's fun. It's fun to watch because it is a reminder that this is what we do. This is the bottom of the brainstem behavior that we humans are capable of. Now, we may not really know what a candidate's actual policies are, but we know what we don't like about the other person. I'm guilty of this, too. I can know very little about the positives one of these people will bring to our city and to our state, but I know all the bad things the other person has done, at least what the commercial has told me. And when we see these people, whether on TV, even my daughter, who's 11, we're watching Jeopardy. We make her watch Jeopardy. And... um, (laughs) Jeopardy is when all those commercials comes on. I guess it's like an age thing, and we're in that category now. And uh, a commercial will come on for a certain candidate. She's, she's 11. She's like, oh, this guy, you know. <laughs> and when we see them, and this is the thing I want you to hear, when we see them, we only see them through the lens of their losses and failures and what's wrong with them. True or not, that's what we do. Months ago, I was having coffee with Howie and I were having coffee at Starbucks. Do you remember this? And Raphael Warnock walks out, and we're both like, hey, that's Raphael Warnock, you know? And, uh, but you know what you do? You immediately, like, see him through the commercials. That's what you see. And my question for you is, can you imagine what it's like to walk through a crowd of people, a coffee shop, to walk through your place of work, to walk around your neighborhood, to move about even in the community of the church, and to know that when people see you, the thing they see the most is what's wrong with you. Can you imagine that? Have you ever had to live through a rumor about you that wasn't true? Have you ever had to survive the labeling that you received because of something you did or something that happened on your watch, something that you were responsible for. You ever had to live through that? It's tough. Uh, The building we live in uh, is a very close-knit condo community. All the units face each other into a courtyard. So we all kind of know each other. We've been there a long time. And several months ago, maybe like three months ago, it was a Saturday morning, and drinking some coffee, writing a sermon, Uh, No. Uh, And I hear this screaming 
And so Mickey pauses the TV and we run outside and there's a lot of people in the courtyard. And what I notice is that one of my neighbors is holding her hand and she's running. And the other neighbor who lives next to her is saying very loudly, I'm so sorry. And then another neighbor is holding the dog that bit her. Now, by the time I got out there, people were already mobilized to get her to the hospital, et cetera. A week later, I get an email, everybody got an email from the HOA that the dog had been removed, neutralized from the condominium complex. And you know what? The neighbor who owned that dog, I haven't seen her since. She won't come out. She will not come out of her condominium. She doesn't come outside anymore. You ever feel like a public disaster? If you do, this story is for you. In the text, right when the crowd turns on Jesus and Zacchaeus, we read these words. Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Look, half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as much. Now, this conversation happens not in Zacchaeus' home. This is happening in the street, right there on the road. He stops and stands before Jesus and pleads his case with all these people around him, right there in the street, right in the middle of all the noise and the judgment, both him, both of him and of Jesus. Zacchaeus speaks a word of defense. Now, the Greek here is interesting. It's in the present tense, but also progressive. It indicates that what Zacchaeus is actually saying is, Jesus, this is what I do. This has always been my practice. That yes, I'm wealthy, but also generous and in touch with the needs of those who were less fortunate. So he's making a case. In the previous chapter, Luke 18, Jesus talks to what we have now called the rich young ruler who lived this outwardly righteous life. It says in the story, he kept, quote, all the commandments, the story says. But there was something on the inside of the rich young ruler, a sense of greed and scarcity that plagued the man, and Jesus challenged him to deal with that, and it says that he went away sad. And Zacchaeus is someone who has the outward appearance of an unrighteous life, because of his vocation, labeled as a sinner, a public disaster. But his deeds of generosity tell a very different story. Luke does this a lot in his gospel. And that's that he points out to the reader that appearances can be deceiving. And then Jesus said to him, verse 9, today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. Notice how Jesus says this. He first speaks to Zacchaeus, to him, salvation has come to you. And then he speaks to the crowd, for he too is a son of Abraham. Jesus, forever the hope dealer, forever the one who stands in the middle of judgment, and speaks a different 
word. This story brings life. The older I get, the more this story becomes a source of life and hope. And if there is an ethic to learn from this story, if there is a particular way of being in the world that this story invites us to be, it's the difficult deprogramming of our tendency to see other people as categories and labels. That's what it's doing. And that's what Jesus is dismantling. Because what we know, I think, in retrospect, is that that kind of behavior doesn't really help. It's not working. I would say in a more strong way, hatred is not working. The othering that we do, it's not working. I mean, it works. It's like a hit. But it's not working. Remember back to our sermons a a couple months ago through Micah 6.8, the verse that calls God's people to be... uh, to do justice, to love kindness and mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Do you remember that? Those three things, to do justice, to love kindness and mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Mercy is at the heart of this story, and mercy is the way. The church is called in this story to be a people of mercy. That's it. There's nothing more to do with this one. It's not about giving to the capital campaign. It's not about if you're short, you can do great things. It's about mercy. And more importantly, there is a message of mercy for all who need it. In a moment, we'll take communion and you'll be told at the table that Jesus gave his life for you. And that's it. It's given for you without condition. You know, they asked John the Baptist, what do we do? If you were to ask that question at the communion table, what do I do because of this? There's nothing to do. It's been done for you, and we just sit with that remarkable, encouraging story. I hope that my neighbor comes out one day. And I hope that you if you ever feel this way, know at least in this entire city, you can come through those red doors and you're not a public disaster. Amen? And I hope that whatever is keeping you in hiding will one day disappear. And so may you always notice the grace of the Lord all around you. And may you experience the mercy of the Lord's presence as a saving balm on your life. Amen.